there's been periods of my life where I have um, I've been in a worship environment, and when it comes to an end, it's unsettling. There's just a, a longing to commune with the Lord in such a real and powerful way. I don't know if you've experienced that. I'm very thankful for the worship that we enjoy together. And as good as it might be, it doesn't compare to what we'll enjoy in heaven for an eternity. Oh my goodness. Well, let's look in God's Word today. Um, This is the last message. Not in Genesis, but in the beginning. Uh, We make a transition this morning. Uh, midway through the message, and we'll begin looking at what will become the patriarchs. But before we get there, we finish up with this last section in Genesis 11, two genealogies. And so last week we looked at the Tower of Babel, where all of mankind was united in a single language, with a single vocabulary, not only speaking English, if you will, but using the exact same words with the exact same meaning, understood and implied. And so together, they were united in doing something. And as the Tower of Babel story tells us, they were united in building a city instead of going out and filling the earth as God had instructed. They wanted to build a tower that would reach up into the heavens presumably so that the little g-gods could descend and ascend into and out of the heavens so that they could commune with these little g-gods. And then most informative, I think, is the reality that they wanted to make a name for themselves as opposed to honoring God or glorifying God or uplifting the name of God. God was nowhere in the thought process. He was nowhere... In their intentions, they only were thinking about what they wanted to do. So God saw the intent of man's heart, and just as it was prior to the flood, the intent of man's heart was only evil continuously. But instead of flooding the earth again, God simply confuses their common language and scatters the people all over the world. And as we looked at in previous weeks at the map, that would define generically where the sons of Shem and Ham and Japheth went to. They went all over the world and eventually inhabiting every corner of the world as we would understand it today. We're not told how God did this scattering, how it was accomplished, only that He did it. So this scattering at the Tower of Babel creates the vast table of nations that we looked at in chapter 10, where each language, excuse me, each nation would be gathered together by these unique languages that came about at the scattering and the confusion at the Tower of Babel. There's 70 nations listed in the Table of Nations, and there's very likely some variation in each of the languages spoken by these people. Although there's likely common derivatives and common sounds, they are unique languages in each of these nations. So a central part of the Babel experience was the movement towards idolatry, rooted in rebellion. We want to build a tower into the heavens to commune with the little g-gods, And so upon scattering the people into the world as we would know it, they took that idolatry with them. 
It was not left in Babel. It journeyed with them, and everywhere they went, they reformulated and expanded upon whatever idolatry was familiar to them. And now the world is filled with the worship of idols, and there are almost none that worship the one true God. The only exceptions that we know of are Job in Arabia. Who is Job? Where did Job come from? Not a lot of information. And then this real strange character named Melchizedek, who comes out of Canaan, of all places. And these are the only two that we know of that have any pursuit of God. So as we continue in our study, we move from the paganism of Babel towards the promise that would come from the line of Shem. And this takes us into the into a new book section, beginning here in 1110, the descendants of Shem. So we've already looked at the line of Shem in chapter 10, but here it will be developed a little bit more fully, although it would still be considered a very selective genealogy, not listing every individual that was born, highlighting just the first person born and the first son born from each of these other sons. I think I said that wrong. So it's identifying not every person born, but just the first son from each of the sons that would be born. Now you'll notice here in verse 1, The common phrase that is used to mark each new book, these are the records of the generations of, and here it is Shem. And so this is the Toledot, which marks each new book, remembering that there are ten books in these fifty chapters of Genesis. And I've lost count. I think this is book six, maybe book five. Forgive me for not looking and being more familiar with that. This is the shortest of the ten books, a mere sixteen verses. And we will note two obvious differences as we read through this. The first difference is that in chapter 5, when the genealogy of the godly line of Seth is given, there was the constant refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. All of those generations that came from Seth were moving towards the catastrophic event of the flood and each of them were destined for a death of judgment. Here we see instead he had many other sons and daughters. This phrase replaces and he died. While all of these people will die, it indicates the movement towards hope and promise as opposed to a death of judgment through the flood. Now, second difference that we'll notice in here is we'll see a radically shortened lifespan in this post-flood new world. No longer will people live into their 900s, but by the time we get to the end of this chapter, life will end at around 200 years, and it progresses progresses to be even shorter as time goes by. Let's read together Genesis Chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, and we're going to look at this in a half section, and then we'll make some comments and then pick that up. So, beginning of verse 10, these are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah, and Arpachshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber, and Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father 
father of Peleg, and Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Now we're going to pause here, because this is the midpoint in the line of Shem. Peleg occupies place number five in the ten generations that run from Shem all the way to Abraham. Peleg is the middle part of that. The five generations being Shem, Arpachshad, Shelah, Eber, and Peleg. These five represent a concise restatement of Shem's genealogy as it was given in chapter 10 as a part of the table of nations. But there's a very key difference here, and that is Peleg's brother Joktan is not mentioned here, but only Peleg... And his descendants are listed, which will take us all the way to Terah and then to Abram. So why is Joktan and his descendants not listed as are Peleg and his descendants? Well, it is theorized, although it isn't specifically spelled out in the Genesis account, that the fiasco at Babel was likely instigated through the line of Joktan, not through the line of Peleg. Peleg's line results in the great man Abram, the hope of God's people. Peleg then becomes the line of grace that comes from Shem. Joktan is not mentioned. Joktan's descendants are not mentioned, but only Peleg's. And he becomes the line of grace. One author says this, this highlights the difference in the two inner branches of the Shemite family, the descendants of Shem, one leading to disgrace at Babel and the other leading to grace through Abram. So this is what is theorized, although it's not specifically sped out in Genesis, it is likely why only Peleg's line is developed through the line of Shem. We're going to continue now in the second half of this genealogy, picking up at 18 and running through verse 26. Peleg, excuse me, Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ruah, and Peleg, Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ruah, and he had other sons and daughters. Ruah lived 32 years and became the father of Sirug, and Ruah lived 207 years after he became the father of Sirug, and he had other sons and daughters. Sirug lived 30 years and became the father of Naor, and Sirug lived 200 years after he became the father of Naor, and he had other sons and daughters. Naor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah, and Naor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Naor, and Haran. So, the second half of this genealogy, which extends from Peleg through Terah to Abram, places Abram only five generations after the event at Babel. Those five generations are far shorter than the five generations that would have been the midway point between Adam and Noah because of the length of lives lived by those ancestors. So, We know that only five generations have passed from the fiasco at Babel, and we know that because the Tower of Babel was built in Peleg's time. Genesis 10.25 says, In his days, Peleg's days, the earth was divided. So Peleg was very likely an adult 
probably not married, probably didn't have any children yet, but he was alive at the time at the time of this scattering of Babel, and this marks the midway point between the ten generations from Seth all the way down to Abram. So the genealogy ends with Terah fathering three sons, Abram, Naor, and Haran. So Terah is the father of Abram. Ten generations from Shem to Abram, just as there were ten generations from Adam to Noah. Ten being the number of completion. The genealogy ends just like the ten generations from Adam to Noah ended, where Joah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here we find that Terah is now the father of Abram, Naor, and Haran. So what is interesting is that in the order of the sons that are given to both Noah and Terah, they are not listed in the order of their birth, but they are instead listed in the order of their importance. Shem from Noah and Abram from Terah are named first because of their prominence. Abram means exalted father. Now this is a bit of a mystery. We know that Abram will be renamed Abraham, the father of a great nation, the father of many nations. But it's a bit of a mystery because of the pagan background that Abram has come out of. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So it is from Abram the nation of Israel would be born. It is from Abram's line that the Messiah would eventually come. So Moses has shown that God's promise to Eve of a seed who will crush the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3.15, this promise could not be stopped by the confusion and the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel. As the nation of Israel is on the verge of entering into the promised land, And as they begin to see the mass of people that are there and how well the cities are fortified and how well armed their inhabitants are, they need to be reminded of God's sovereign plan to provide for a Messiah for His people. This is all a part of the story that Moses is telling. God's sovereign plan will not be stopped. Not through the flood, Not through the scattering of the Tower of Babel. Not through the mighty nations that they are going to encounter once they enter into the Promised Land. Now what is also interesting to note is that Terah is not a godly man. Abram's role as the exalted father of Israel would only come through the grace of God. Abram is not the recipient of a godly line that originated in his father, even though you could trace back through the line of Shem some godliness there. There is no godliness that is being passed down through these other five generations. Joshua tells us something about Terah, the father of Abram. He tells us in Joshua 24.2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Naor, and they served other gods. 
Terah was not a worshiper of the one true God. Terah came from a long line of idolatry, and Abraham is born in the midst of this pagan idolatry. It is out of this background that Abram is called, and with no reasonable explanation, he gets the name Exalted Father. It's probably God's sovereign work through the ungodly, pagan, idolatrous Terah who gives to his son this name, Exalted Father, that is going to be prophetically come true in the life of Abraham who will become the father of many nations. It's a very bizarre thing, but God rules over all, all the time, whether we understand it or see it or acknowledge it. And here, apparently... Terah gives to his son Abram a name that is going to mean something far different from what Terah likely thought it might. So Abram is called out of this pagan background passed on through his idolatrous father Terah. And so this very quickly concludes the generations of Shem and leads us into the next book which begins the patriarchal period. We look now at the descendants of Terah. There's no segue here. There's no transition. It's only a continuation of genealogical information. So this book that begins here in 1127 is going to take us all the way through chapter 25, verse 10, where the generations of Terah will come to an end and a new generation will be given to us in the history of Genesis. So this genealogy that we're going to look at here is incredibly short. It will only serve as an introduction to the main characters in Israel's historical beginning, as well as setting up this dramatic stage of events that is going to unfold through the line of the descendants of Terah. The later happenings in the book of Genesis are only hinted at here as Moses takes the form and I say this very cautiously Moses takes the form of a very clever storyteller through the inspiration and intention of the of the father to explain to the nation of Israel from where they have come now this is not a story in the sense that it's fable or myth or anything like that But Moses is telling the nation of Israel what God is instructing him to tell them. And this little insight that we see here in this very, very brief genealogy hints at the dramatic events that are going to eventually come in the the story of Genesis. So we're going to look, number one, at the key characters. Uh, The number one and number two are not in your outline. That got added after all that was done, and that will be added next time. So we look now at the key characters. We'll see this here in 11, 27 and 28. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. There is the new Toledot indicating a new section. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. So the primary characters that we are initially introduced here are Abram and Lot. The three sons of Terah are again named. And we have the added information of the son of Haran, 
who is Lot. Now, Lot is introduced because of his role in the life of Abram as the story of Genesis continues. We're told that Lot's father, Haran, dies, and Abram, as an uncle, becomes like a father figure to Lot. Now, the next key characters that were introduced here are to their wives. Verse 29 and 30. Abram and Naor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Naor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, we know what all of this is leading us to know more about because we've already read it, but you can see how masterfully these characters are being set up for these dramatic events that are going to take place throughout the story of Genesis. So, <coughs> excuse me, we're told about the women whom Abram and Naor would marry. Abram marries Sarai, who we will much later learn is his, is his half-sister, since she is a daughter of Terah. Naor marries his niece Milcah, the daughter of his brother Haran, who had died. Some argue this is a different Haran, but there's most that believe this is actually the Haran. And they, would, <laughs> they actually say, some authors and, and, and uh, uh, writers say, that Abram has a, uh, a very interesting uh, little inbred family going on here, as it's not terribly uncommon to marry family members, but half-sisters and nieces, um, okay, so this is apparently what's going on here. So we're told that Sarai is barren. And we understand the importance of that, don't we? This information becomes important later when the promise of a child is given to Abram and to his barren wife, Sarai. This sets the stage for the dramatic and somewhat unexpected call that is going to come to Abram in chapter 12. So here is Abram. A long line descendant of idolatrous worship initiated at Babel, passed down through his ancestors. And this is a family of pagans. We really need to understand this. This is a family of pagans. Terah's family, and by extension this would include Abram, were worshippers primarily of the moon. Now, we didn't get into a lot of this when we looked at the Tower of Babel because of the sake, for the sake of time. Joshua doesn't spell out the details of the idolatry of Terah from whom Abram has come. But this place, Ur of the Chaldeans, where they lived, where they were raised, was the center for moon worship. Most certainly, this is something that originated in Babel, and the worship of the moon most certainly would have extended beyond just the moon and to many, many other things, other celestial bodies, other things on the earth that they could see and perhaps even feel like waters and the skies and the animals. So this Ur of the Chaldeans, this worship of the moon god, originated in Babel, the city, or the Chaldeans, was dominated by a massive three-staged ziggurat built by Ur-Namu in 2000 B.C. Secular archaeology and history can confirm this. And this is what a modern depiction of a ziggurat, this is what it would look like. 
Each stage, as you see here, the three stages, each stage was colored distinctively with the top level bearing the silver one-roomed shine to Nana, the moon god. Terra and his family most certainly worshipped on one of these ziggurats. It is assumed that Abram and his family would ascend as far as they were allowed. They would look at the moon and they would worship and they would offer sacrifices and they would do all of the things that were a part of the worship of this idol. This is a picture of an ancient remains of a ziggurat and what it would look like more accurately from that depiction which is so clean and and carved out. So... Somewhere in this ziggurat around the base is a royal cemetery. And when they've excavated this royal cemetery, it is revealed what is assumed to be ritual burials for important people. And many ancient historians say that this royal cemetery is sealed with human sacrifice. Think about that. Here is your God, and as a part of our worship to our God, we're going to kill you and you and you and you and you. So come on up. You're going to be a sacrifice. It's all okay. Because Nana is going to be very, very pleased. So the names of Tara's family are filled with examples of this moon worship idolatry. Tara's name is related to the word Yariah, which is moon, and Yera, which is lunar month. Sarai is the equivalent to the Akkadian Saratu, which means queen, and was the name of the wife of the moon god Sin. Milcah is the name, is the, is the same as the goddess Malkatu, a title of Ishtar, the daughter of the moon god. So Terah's family, the names of his family, is rooted in the worship of the moon god, and is, it is out of this context that Abram will be eventually called, and here the unexpected happens. Number two, and that is the move. Verse 31 and 32. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So as we look at this section here, this move, there's a bit of a quandary in how we are to actually understand what is being said here. So we are told that Terah took his family from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into Canaan, but we're told in Genesis 15 that God called Abram to leave the land of Ur and to go to where he would Tell him to go. So Genesis 15 tells us that Abram was called to leave his family and to go. To go to the land that I'm going to show you. But here we're told that Terah took his family out of Ur of the Chaldeans and to go, they were to go into Canaan. So Genesis 15.7 says, And he, God, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of, the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. 
Likewise, when Stephen defends his faith in Acts chapter 2 before he is viciously stoned to death, he affirms that Abram's call took place while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. It says in Acts 7, 2-4, And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran from there. After his father died, God moved him to this country in which you are now living. So there's a bit of a quandary in how we're going to understand this. And the simplest way to understand it is very simply like this. Abram was called while living in Ur of the Chaldeans and then probably convinced his father Terah to move. Now, we don't really know how that took about, how that came about. It's possible that God spoke to Terah, but there's no mention of that. There's only the mentioning of Abram being called. There is no call to Terah. There's no indication that Terah worshipped God. There's no mention of there being any change in Terah's life that would motivate him to do such a thing. So the most likely explanation is that Abram was called and convinced his father Terah to move the family. And if, in fact, this is what happened, um, we know based on what is told to us throughout the Old Testament that this is the journey that Abram would go on with this family, Terah. So you can see the origination, Ur of the Chaldeans, and they went as far as Haran, and they settled there, and this is the place that Abram would eventually go. They didn't make it to Canaan. They stopped in Haran, and it was only after Terah died that Abram finished the journey as directed in what we're going to read in the next section in Genesis chapter 12. So it's possible that the stop in Haran was as far as Terah was willing to go, and probably not coincidentally, Haran was also a major center for moon worship. This was a very long and a very difficult journey. They didn't go straight across because of the vast wilderness and the difficult of that journey, so they went the way of travel. And so probably getting to Haran where there is a center for moon worship, Tara felt like this was home enough to him and he was done with the journey. And so dutiful Abraham would wait until until Tara died to finish the journey and complete his obedience to the one true God. Now we're not told any of the detail about this. We can only speculate. And I tend to believe that it's probably most like this because there's no indication that a call came to Terah, that Terah worshipped the one true God, or that Terah had any activity in this move. It is very likely that this call came to Abram, and for reasons that would not necessarily make sense in the ancient culture, Terah listened to his son Abram and agreed to move the family, but only made it about halfway if we were to track that out in terms of mileage. Abram is a man of faith. He's a man of faith in trusting God and going. He's a man of faith in challenging his father and encouraging his father to actually take this journey. But Abram's obedience was one of monumental faith. Why? Because he was a pagan of pagans coming from a long line of idolatrous pagan worship. 
He's advanced in years. 75 is what we're going to learn later. He was likely somewhat prosperous, very settled into his pagan world. He was the only one in his culture who apparently had heard God's word, but on the basis of hearing that call alone, he risked everything to follow God. It is probable that none of us has ever done anything like that before. We might have very incredible stories, very impressive testimonies, as man would measure an impressive testimony. But this thing that Abram did in response to the call of God is a part of what made him such an example of faith. We read in Hebrews 11.1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. One author says it like this, Biblical faith possesses a future certainty, the assurance of things hoped for, coupled with a visual certainty, the conviction of things not seen. Therefore, faith produces a certainty that gives the reality of the actual existence to the things for which we hope. Let me say that again. Faith produces a certainty that gives the reality of the actual existence to the things for which we hope. That is monumental faith. That is what Abram possessed. When he heard the call of God, he was so certain that God was going to provide the things that he did not yet see that he left the land of his father. He encouraged his father and his family to travel with him. He would eventually travel on after his father died. He had a certain promise that he would be the father of a great and vast nation, the father of many nations. And so the future promise that God gave to Abram was applied to Abram's present reality. And he said, i got to go. That's monumental faith. I mean, I, I don't even know how we could provide a proper analogy to how radical this is and how far beyond our wildest imagination it could actually be. But it was a monumental act of faith. So again, this is one example of why Abram's faith is so great and why the Bible speaks so highly of him. Noah and Abram together possessed an extraordinary faith that cannot be explained by the culture they lived in. It can only be explained by the grace of God to speak and to enable these men to hear which resulted in their unwavering commitment to do the thing that God had called them to do. Both heard God speak and both were obedient to God's call. Both are known as men of great faith. So out of both of these men, we see this journey from paganism to promise. The paganism at the Tower of Babel, through the line of Terah, passed down to the promise of hope in Abram, just as it was to Noah. This journey from paganism to promise 
is true for every believer today. Every believer today has made a journey from paganism to promise. While many have been raised in a Christian home and know about God from an early age, it is still the grace of God that transforms our pagan hearts into something that desires and is able to worship the one true God. You may be able to look back and say, thanks to mom and dad, thanks to grandma and grandpa, thanks to all the people in my past that have laid out for me a legacy of faith. But make no mistake, your inclusion in the family of God is your own particular journey from an unsaved pagan heart to one that is able to hear and understand and respond to the grace of God. To God alone be the glory. Not our ancestry. Not our legacy. Certainly not our culture. But to God alone. We all share in this journey from deep paganism into an amazing grace of God that allows us to know who He is. And to confidently cling to what it is that lays ahead of us, not only in this life, but in the eternity to come. Would you join me in prayer, please?